Interesting. I dropped a marker in logic. I don't know what that means. We're at the marker. Hi, Tom. <laughs> Hopefully it doesn't destroy the entire recording. I hope not. We're so bad at this without Tom. <laughs> well, the power went out. It's not my fault. Um, Isn't it, though? Mm, Isn't it? Probably. I probably kicked the power for the whole building with my foot. Here, I have something I want to start with, but I have to send you a picture. Okay. Let's see. I'm going to slack it to you. So the building that I, my client is in that I, that I go to on occasion has one of those fancy elevator situations where you, before you get on the elevator, you tell it what floor you want to go to. Yep. And the, the building doesn't look like that interface. The building has like 20 something or so floors or maybe 30. I don't know. And so I have no problem operating the system when I want to get to the floor I'm going to. But then it comes time to leave, and this is purely a programmer problem. But I look at this interface, and we'll put a link to this picture in the show notes. It's a phone keypad. It's a phone or... keypad, right? So it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, star zero pound, or I think it's a minus for some reason, um, right? In so case it's you want to go to floor negative. Well, I guess negative floors are a thing, actually. But... Well, but here's the thing. So uh, the programmer oh, in me stars ground. Well, no, I the programmer in me stares at this thing and says, like, well, do I want to go to floor zero or floor one? What is the lobby? Like, is the lobby the zero with floor? <laughs> the first floor, which is an insane thing to think. The lobby is the first floor. You press one to go to the lobby. You do not have to be a programmer to operate this. The floors are not zero indexed. But every single time, which is only, you know, I leave twice a day when I'm there, once for lunch and then once when I leave at the end of the day, uh, every single time it gives me a momentary, like, panic of, like, wait. Which button do I press? And also, it's typical of lobbies in big buildings to actually not have a number for the lobby. It just says L or LL right. or whatever, lower level lobby or whatever it is. Well, also, the ground floor being the first floor is a very American thing. Hmm. In a lot of European countries, the lobby is the zeroth floor and the first floor is above ground. The lobby is... Wait. The first floor is like off the ground, 10 feet off the ground right. is what you're saying. And, and, and the lobby is the zeroth floor in a lot of European countries. So they are programmers. <laughs> yeah. Because I was looking at this thinking this is purely a programmer problem. Like nobody else looks at this and is confused. They just say, I want to go to the first floor. Um, I think most people would be confused. I think, I think probably, I think maybe because it doesn't have the L button on there. It doesn't for I'll lobby. Bet this, I'll bet the star goes to the ground floor. I've been meaning to experiment, but I like by the time I like the the brief panic enters my mind and I don't quite realize what it is I'm panicking about, and then I just go, "Oh no, I need to press one," and I press one, and then I remember like, "Oh, I want to experiment about pressing. <laughs> I want to press zero and see where that goes, or press star and see what see where that goes." Well, because you know, I like I have no clue with that interface, but on n normal elevators where the buttons are inside the elevator, right? <laughs> the star that's always next to the ground floor. That's right. actually a, a mandated accessibility requirement oh. in the United States. All right. Well, star probably goes there, too. I'll try all these combinations. I'll report back next week. <laughs> Very exciting. Biggest question. Yeah. Where does negative zero go? <laughs> I'll try them all. I'll just, you know, it's a little concerning because the building security here is, you know, is legit in this building. And I'm afraid right. I'm going to end up at some weird, I, in a different building, the client had a lot of people working at their office and they had not enough bathrooms. And so I went to the bathroom and they were full and I went back to my desk. I went to the bathroom five minutes later. They were still full. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go down, down a floor to go to the bathroom. And I went down a floor and it happened to be like the consulate for some, <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm not, I'm wrong floor. Uh, 
<laughs> so yeah, anyway, wandering around in nice buildings in my programmer attire, which is like cargo shorts and a t-shirt, uh, usually probably not going to go well, but eh, I'm willing to do it for science here. <laughs> for our listeners and for science. Anyway, that was my story. Well, hopefully you don't end up in building jail. <laughs> right. Negative zero probably goes to the jail. So just go directly to jail. Bunch of stupid programmers. Anyway. <laughs> so what's going on with you? Well, so actually before we started, I wanted to a random thing that probably won't fit anywhere else. I wanted to give a shout out to uh, Ben Halpern, who wrote mm-hmm. an article on Just Developer Podcast that made it to the top of our programming yesterday. And said some very nice things about the show on there. So I just wanted to say hi, Ben, and thank you for the nice words, and thanks for listening. Wow. Thank you, Ben. I have not seen this. How did you not notify me of this? I need to go check that out. Because I, like... uh, I was in bed, and it was 1130. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to check out our programming tomorrow. That's awesome. Thanks, Ben. It's number six now. But okay. Yeah. Well, you know, I'll throw it a vote. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, what have I been working on? I've been at conferencing for the last week. Yeah, what was it? I was at Abstractions in Pittsburgh, and I spoke about contributing to open source. I've given it a couple of, of times, but this one was a longer form, and then it had a new little section towards the end, because I had a uh, an interaction recently where I closed somebody's pull request, and they responded with, are you f***ing kidding me, you are literally Hitler? Oh, is that what that image was about? Yeah, that's what the image I sent you was. You sent me that uh, image, and I was like, what is happening? And then you never yeah. responded. I asked for clarification, and you never responded. Oh, did I never? Oh, I'm <laughs> no. sorry. Yeah, that's what that was. So this, uh, so I have a slide in the talk now, which I've tried, I tried to make as ridiculous as possible. Um, <laughs> so it's basically got, like, hand-drawn red arrows and some red devil horns and a, and a Hitler mustache, and then in Comic Sans at the bottom, it's flashing literally Hitler. This is a, uh, It's towards the end of the talk, and the whole talk is about empathy, uh, for open source developers, and this is me trying to be like, we actually get some really weird people say strange things to us that are often quite hurtful, and I didn't want—I didn't really want to do one of the like actually legitimately hurtful things, so I picked just one that was comically as absurd as humanly possible. <laughs> so there was that, but uh, so yeah, that's what I've been doing recently. Not a ton of work stuff since, although I do like how on the description for the last episode it says that I was on vacation. Yeah, well, cool. You were on vacation from the podcast. This is yeah. your this is your real job. <laughs> Conferences, such good vacation. <laughs> Only five more. Five more, then I'm done. All right, we'll issue a correction. Sean was not on vacation. Anyway. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for the correction. <laughs> the bike shed was on a two-week hiatus, uh, and now we're back. Yeah, so the talk is called Anatomy of a Good Pull Request, and it's about contributing to open source. Like The overall theme of the talk is just empathy and, like, you can contribute a lot more easily and have a lot bigger impact if you just consider the point of view of the person on the other end of the keyboard. It's a very one-sided sort of perspective on it, even though it's, it's a much more nuanced topic than just like, yeah, think about the maintainers more, and here's a bunch of stuff you can do, and I completely don't talk at all about the things that projects should be doing to make it easy to contribute. Because I, uh, and that's sort of intentional. Because I think that unless it is in direct response to a maintainer burning out, I don't think the serial open source maintainer point of view gets documented nearly as much. And I wanted to also keep the talk as directly actionable for the audience as possible. Right. That was going to be my thing. You're far more likely to have contributors in the audience than you are to have people managing projects. Right. Well, and, and even the people managing the projects might get something out of listening to what the contributors can do, that kind of thing. Yeah, no, definitely. And and like 
I actually do want to do a talk about things that open source projects aren't doing but should be doing and then have a section that like from a point of view of Rails, here's all like I know we should be doing those things. If we're not doing those things, here's why and here's how you can help us to better do those things. That That's a whole different talk. Um, but I, yeah, so uh, I keep it very much like from that point of view and I do worry at times that it kind of comes off as like, won't somebody think of the poor maintainers? But um uh, yeah, so it sort of meanders through just various thoughts I've had over time in terms of like uh, how you should structure your pull request, uh, what you should do, be doing with your commit messages uh, during code review, keeping commits separate and then squashing them down and then amending the commit message when you squash it down to include all of the new context that came from the conversation. And I go into a bit of detail on this theory that I've had on why the third and later pull requests from the same person is significantly more impactful on the project than the first two. Yeah, so a lot, a lot of things like that. It, it was it was recorded this time. This is the third time I've given the talk, but the first time it was recorded. So um, I don't know how long it will take for the recordings to be up. Hopefully it'll be up before this goes out, in which case it'll be in the show notes. And if not, then there'll be a thing in the show notes that says, sorry, the video wasn't up yet. <laughs> um, we can always go back and update the show notes whenever it does come out so that at some point listeners will see it in the show notes. If, sure, if for, they like the five, for, for the 5% <laughs> of listeners that are listening after the first week. <laughs> right. We um, love you 5%. <laughs> it's actually probably more than 5%. I, I have know, no idea but... what, what it is. Yeah, I mean, this was on my mind this week too, so it's interesting that you had just given this talk because like independently this was on my mind because I've had less and less time as i I'm now a director at ThoughtBot, so like a lot of my investment time that I had been spending on open source time is now doing a f trying to get my feet under me on this director stuff, which is like making sure one-on-ones get scheduled and all that stuff. But now I'm getting that under control, so I'm starting to have some more time to like jump back into my open source projects. And because I had I knew I had these other things to do, like pull requests would come in and I would just ignore them. Right. And intentionally so. I'd be like, I, f I need to, I used to like, what happened was like a pull request would come in and I don't get, I, you know, it's not Rails. So I might get one or, you know, a big week is like two pull requests will come into my projects. And I used to keep them around in my inbox as like, here's a to-do. I need to go review this thing. And so I kind of recently made the decision that like, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to like, when I have time to go work on clearance or scenic or something like that, I'm going to go see what's out there and I'll start reviewing that way rather than like keeping these things around hanging over my head. Like I've got to get back to these people. And well, that's right. That's, that's the story of all open source maintainers, like limited. This is why it's important to have the pull requests, like have people have the, the submitter assume that you know nothing about the problem or the solution or the project and just have all of the context you need right, right. there. What was really what was really interesting for me in this time though is like somehow like I don't get a lot of contributors to to clearance but like people recognize that for whatever reason I wasn't responding to pull requests like I usually had and they just started doing it themselves like there were a few people I can link to the pull request discussion in the show notes and there were a few people that were like doing a review and being like yes I think this is the right way to go about this and this never happens on clearance like it's always somebody submits a pull request I have to decide whether or not it's a feature I want to support or if it's the right fix and maybe I go back and forth with them or maybe I just like download the branch and make the changes I want and let them keep the commit right. um, because like we had this conversation too with Melanie who was asking the question about like how do you handle that do you merge do you like do the squashing for them that kind of thing and like my opinion is on my smaller projects like I may spend a Friday every six weeks or four weeks doing clearance stuff so 
going back and forth just isn't going to be worth it to me unless I know that the person is really interested in the process of like getting a pull request merged, then maybe I will go back and forth. But most of the time, it's just like, I assume they want this change in. It just needs these two or three small things. It needs these hound comments cleaned up or whatever the case may be. And then I will just do it and merge it myself. But anyway, I just thought it was interesting that like in my absence, a few people were like, we'll just review this. And at some point I jumped in and said like, I'm, I am seeing this conversation. I just don't have time to deal with this right now. Um, and then on my train ride down to New York for our summer summit, I merged in a bunch of pull requests. And that was one of, I think, I think I, I didn't actually merge that pull request. Like the, the outcome of that was like a really great discussion. And I was like, thank you. I'm going to go in this different direction. I merged this other thing, but like the conversation was super valuable in pointing me in that direction. Yeah. No, that's super cool. (laughs) Yeah. But you, you mentioned a few things there that you think right off the bat people can do to like try and so, so your goal should be, I I feel like your goal should be like. You should assume you're going to get this maintainer's attention for a very small slice of time, and you want to avoid that back and forth, right? Yeah. So I know this this cannot possibly describe every single every single open source maintainer, but I think the vast majority fall into one of two buckets. Either they are a part-time open source contributor, and they usually do it on nights and weekends, or just for some reason a very limited amount of time and don't have the time they would like to devote to their projects and can spend less time on pull requests than they'd like. And and also that leads to like the, do I have time to work on features or do I want to do issue triage? Uh, and then the other bucket are the full-time open sourcers who, as far as I know, every single one is on a project that is ridiculously swamped and doesn't have enough people to keep up with the number of issues coming in. And then have the same effects. Right. If you need full-time people supporting your project, it's probably because it's being used a lot, which means it has a lot of reported issues, which means it has a lot of a lot of people trying to contribute or trying to point out those issues. Right. <laughs> um, and so, and so, but this and right, so the same effect though. You don't have as much time to spend on any individual issue as you would like. And then it's also that same balancing act of like, do it? Can I work on new feature stuff or do I do issue triage? The the end result always being that like nobody has as much time to spend on each individual issue as they would like. That is true. Yeah. So it doesn't matter how big and successful your project is. Almost nobody has the amount of time they want to spend on it available. Right. Yeah. So that's why I think it's very important, right? So like if you're just as an an example, so like let's say you're adding support to uh, for some Postgres feature to active record, right? Useful thing to do. Link to the relevant section in the Postgres docs on the feature you're adding. So that way, if I don't know what the feature you're trying to add is, or I just need a refresher or anybody's reading it right bam it's right there fixing a bug link to the commit that introduced the bug right and usually even just linking to any commits that have recently affected the code that you're touching is also useful and being like you know telling the story of like well and this code ended up in this situation because this person did this and they were trying to solve this problem and that's all great but it had this other unforeseen consequence and that has caused this bug and how do you see links how do you suggest finding the commit that introduced the bug well so i ideally if you are fixing a bug you aren't just putting the Band-Aid on. You actually have taken the time to understand what the cause is. And so at that point, get blame should be all you need. Right. Or get context if you, if, you, if you alias it like I do, which I highly recommend that you do because blame is the worst named tool. Get blame. And you call it get con. I've heard people calling it get praise just for... <laughs> Shaking up. No context. No. I have not. <laughs> what, no, because I actually often am using it as like, oh my god, who would ever write this? Why would you write it this way? This is so wrong. Get blame. Rah, rah, rah. Oh, right. it's me. It's always me. <laughs> right. it's, when, I, when I'm having that reaction, it's always me. 
<laughs> and then you read your great commit message and you go, oh, reasons, I see. That or uh, there's one not too, I think I might have mentioned on the show actually when it happened, there was one not too long ago where the commit message was literally an apology to myself <laughs> and a promise to fix it soon. <laughs> and soon was you right then. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I don't know. So that like those are great ideas. Um, other things that I notice that people don't necessarily do is like on our projects, we run Hound. So this Hound is like a style checker and like they will give you feedback on things you should fix and they just leave it there. And it's like, well, <laughs> I, yeah, have, uh. I have this bot installed for a reason, right? If somebody has gone through the, the hassle of setting up a bot, be it like a style bot or, you know, the Rails pull request one or whatever, whatever it's telling you to do, make sure you do. Right. So that, again, you're only going to get a limited slice of these people's times. Don't make them waste it by being like, can you please correct these style issues or whatever the case may be. Well, and I, and I actually, so the first, I think, four or five slides, it's, it's a really short thing because I, I don't go into it too much because there's just not a ton to say on it. But I have this list of like, here are the prerequisites you should be doing before you're, you're even thinking about submitting a pull request. And one of, it's like read and listen to contributing.md, have tests, make sure it's code that you're proud of because somebody else is going to be maintaining it for you and follow the style guide. Right. The tests are interesting too because there are times I get some great pull requests that are like... Um, I think that one I was just talking about, somebody introduced uh, some tests around what they had done. And I was happy to see that they had written the tests because it meant that like I had, by reading the tests and looking at the code, I had reasonable certainty that what they had done fixed, fixed the problem. Right. But I was also able to say like, but I don't think we need these tests anymore. So, you know, we can delete these tests when we merge it in or whatever the case may be. Uh, and that's fine. But just seeing that they had gone through the hassle of writing the tests and like they committed the tests and I can look at it and I can make that decision of whether or not I think that test is valuable to keep around or not. Um, in this case, I, I don't think it was. But most of the time, the answer is yes, I'm going to keep those tests around. So definitely write tests because even if you think they're somewhat redundant, it just shows that like you put in some thought into how this bug is exercised. Like maybe you think like, oh, there's an existing test that actually covers to make sure there's like a, a regression test. There, there isn't a specific regression test, but there's a, an existing test that makes sure things are still operating the way that we thought they should have been operating from the beginning. Right. But if you can add that regression test, even if it's kind of duplicating some of that original test, but exercise it in a very specific way, like even if I don't keep that regression test, just knowing that you went through that hassle is going to up the chances that I just immediately click merge. Yes. And a thing that you should definitely not do if, right, so if you are in that situation where there's no existing tests and the maintainer asks if you can add a regression test, uh, the, the, the thing you should not do there if you'd like your patch to be merged is reply with, I'm sorry, I'm just not interested in keeping up with your test debt. <laughs> Does that happen? Yes. Yeah. yeah. The other important thing, I think, and coming at it from a maintainer perspective again, sorry, is like I'm becoming more and more comfortable with just saying no. <laughs> Right. Um, because there are alternatives. People can fork the project and run it themselves. And like maintaining a fork of Rails is going to be difficult. Maintaining a fork of any of my libraries is not going to be hard. Like if you want to keep it up to date, go for it. Well, and there's not, it doesn't always require forking, right? right it could like, be a monkey patch or whatever, right? So, well, and sometimes it's just there's a workaround. Right. Right. Yeah. There's a ton that goes into considering whether to fix a problem. Like, how many users are affected? Is there a workaround? How complex is the fix? Because, right, adding complexity to a to an open source code base, just like to an app code base, is going to make it more likely that new bugs are going to introduce in the future. It's going to make it harder to onboard new contributors. If there's a workaround and it only affects a handful of users, and the fix is really complex, sometimes it's better to just not 
fix the issue. Yeah, and that's definitely like I've been asking myself as I review changes. Like, there are times when I get a feature, I get a new feature or a usually it's a new feature, maybe like an enhancement of an existing feature, which you could just say is actually a new feature. And I'll look at it and I'll say like I could see how this would be useful, but this project has existed for seven years without it, right? So the answer is like, I'm going to wait. And sometimes I'll just sit on it and see if like they can drum up support for it or whatever the case may be. And then after a while, just be like, I'm not sure about this one. I'm going to close it for now. If you strongly disagree, like, let me know. But here's why. Here's what I'm thinking. Like, and here's how you, you know, the code that you presented could very easily live in your application too. that kind of thing. A lot lot of times with stuff like that, I'll I'll take that as an opportunity to reexamine the underlying architecture. And say like, okay, so I definitely don't want to maintain this feature, but what I do want is to have everything set up in such a way that's very easy for you to add that feature on right. public API. Exactly. Yep. That's a great way to, to approach it. The other thing I, I like, e- even when a feature is going to be like, I think a feature is going to be useful to a few people. I used to just be like, yes, I could see how this feature would be useful. I would want to use this feature. Or maybe like I know projects that have used this and I've had to build it myself and it was a pain in the butt, like that type of thing. But now I'm being more careful about being like, okay, yes, anecdotally, I have these cases where it would be useful to have it. But is it worth... Sometimes the feature is really awesome, but it's just not worth the complexity. Right. And we've had a few of those on Scenic where people have been like, this would be really cool to have. And the answer is like, yes, but you've made the simple use case more complex. So if you can add some cool thing without adding complexity to anybody else who's using the library, then that's awesome. If you add a cool feature, but it, it muddies the like 90% use case, then that's almost never going to get merged. Yeah. Um, so you have to find a way to do it without impacting people who don't care that this feature exists. Well, I mean, it's always going to impact people who don't care, right? Un- unless the maintainers of the project have unlimited time and or energy and or magically never introduce bugs, every line of code added to a code base will affect users. Right, right. Because it, it's energy not spent elsewhere, and it's more bugs. It's more potential for bugs to get introduced. More surface area, right? It's freezing puppy. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, like the saying that we have around here is that like code is a liability, not an asset. Right. Um, and so you want just enough of it to do what you need and no more. So I think that's why I try and I've been trying to say no a lot more, unfortunately. So sorry, people. But again, right? Like, there's nothing wrong with plugins. Plugins are cool. Yeah, except when you're dealing in, like, Rails engine land, which both Scenic and Clearance end up dealing. Um, let me check the Boston room here. It says all set, power's back on. So Okay, cool. So, hopefully, I don't remember what I was saying. I'm going to suggest to Tom that we put the um, the panel over here on UPS, but... <laughs> 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 yeah so sorry listeners uh there have been power outages <laughs> is why this episode is like randomly uh a little disjoint <laughs> yeah so do you remember what i was saying because i don't remember i, have, what I, was I don't remember what you were saying i tried to figure out in logic how to go back and play what i had just said but i don't remember anymore either complexity uh, something about that anyway yeah we were vaguely talking <laughs> about you, you were talking about code as a liability not an asset there we go. Yeah, code is a liability, not an asset. So you want to have as little of it as possible to do the job that you absolutely need to do, and hopefully no more. Um, right. And that's a little hard in open source projects because oh, it's plugins no... is what we were talking about. Oh, right. Yeah. 
So trying to get to a plug-in system because that allows people to add their own complexity <laughs> right? <laughs> and their own feature that hopefully is an asset to them. Because with open source projects, it's really hard to always be chasing that, like, is this code an asset thing when you are trying to serve a wide audience? But if you can do the plugins thing, that's fantastic. So my follow-up question is, when am I going to get the migration API that I need to make Scenic not a monkey patch? <laughs> I have one, probably. All right. Fantastic. So I'll get to totally rewrite it then. <laughs> So I do try to make it a policy of if I introduce an API, I'm using it. So well, actually, you will probably end up just getting a pull request when it's ready. Yeah, actually, it's the way it's implemented. Like the the monkey patch part is a thin layer, and everything else lives in like its own classes and stuff like that. So it shouldn't. Yeah, be too bad. Caleb was telling me you guys got most of what you needed in five zero, and it's not too bad anymore. Yeah, I don't know. I don't remember. He does. He's been doing a lot of maintenance on it lately that I have not been doing. So I do still that. think the generic like extend the schema dumper being an API, though, would be a useful thing. Yeah, I mean, it's something that a lot of people want to do, and you end up having weird... We do have weird incompatibilities with things, like if you try and use Scenic with Foreigner, things don't work out so well, depending on the order in which you require them. As one does. <laughs> and there's nothing that we can really do about that. So, hmm, don't use Foreigner, because Rails has built-in support for foreign keys now. <laughs> right. um, but I'm sure there's other things, too, where that happens, um, and it's a pain for us to debug. But... You know, it is what I've it is. had a fun migration one actually. That's semi-related to that. Yeah, because I've I've actually not been doing much open source lately because uh, I have been asked to help with the Rails five migration uh, for Shopify. Mm -hmm. And eventually, I got really annoyed every time I tried to run a test seeing the bazillion deprecation warnings. So I decided to work on removing alias method chain, which is not strictly required for the Rails 5 migration, but needs to get done sooner or later. It is a warning in Rails 5, right, when you use it? It is a deprecation warning in Rails 5, yes, saying that you should use module prepend instead. Now, interesting fun fact, though, and that, like this sounds scarier and easier to hit than it actually is because this requires you wanting to monkey patch the same method externally twice. But basically, if you override a method using alias method chain and then you override that same method using a prepended module, you will get an infinite loop unconditionally. Um, okay. I'm not positive if, it, if the order matters or not. If it does matter, it would probably have to be in the reverse order. Like doing the alias method chain first and then doing module prepend? No, doing the prepended module first and then alias method chain. Although I, I'm, I'm not certain if it matters or not. But it makes sense, right? Because the, the method without thing is going to be pointed at the prepended module. Right. But then the prepended module super is going to be pointed at the alias method chain because the alias method chain modifies the class, not the prepended module. And that's sort of the point of prepend is to have super point at the class. Right. So they will always just get an infinite loop. Prepend was a thing when it came out. I was like, yes, this makes sense. And then every time I go to use it, I have to think really hard about what it's doing. Whereas for whatever reason, alias method chain never confused me. And it's almost the same thing. Very close to being the same thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, the difference being module prepend is affecting the inheritance chain, which is usually what you want when you're changing the behavior of existing methods. Right. So yeah, I just try and now I just try and think of it as like, would I use alias method chain for this? Yes, then just use module prepend, call it a yeah. day. But I try not to think about what like prepending a module means when you're already inside a class. Like that's where my brain starts to go. What does this mean again? <laughs> anyway, yeah, not related. But you get an infinite loop, and how are you going to solve this problem? Uh, n not using alias method chain. Right. But now you have to fix all uses of alias method chain at one time no right because this is only when multiple places are overriding the, the same, same method right, right which we actually do 
several times in Shopify core. And luckily, right, when it occurs, it, it occurs very loudly. It's not, so, it's not a sort of thing where well, you're going to accidentally quiet. miss it. It's quiet. It's just... <laughs> no, no, a uh, stack level too deep error. error. Yeah. Is it actually called stack overflow in Ruby? I think it's stack level too deep, I thought. Yeah, well, that error in Ruby is probably the loudest exception in all of Ruby. You mean loudest uh, as in, like, it's going to make your fans run for a little bit? No, loudest <laughs> as in it's going to, depending on your settings, not show the error message on your terminal because the, the, the backtrace will be right. long enough to hit the scroll right. limit. Which I used to not keep a scroll limit on my terminal. I used to have the unlimited scroll back, and then I accidentally printed a few million lines to my terminal, and my terminal got really slow, so now I keep a... Oh. Huh. I hadn't considered that that would obviously have that effect. Yeah. I don't remember yeah. what my scroll back is. It slows down if it, if it, once it gets past a few million. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that I, I don't know. That was a fun little migration. Thing. And, and just the thing that sucks is that it means that if we have a method getting monkey patched by a gem, I have to go fix that gem. You have not jumped on my desk in like three years. Why are you suddenly deciding you want to be on my desk? Because it looks like a nice place to be. Oh, you were talking to the cat. Oh, sorry. <laughs> dad jokes <laughs> um, but the bright side is most of our gems are controlled by us right? and for the ones that aren't like almost all of them have a to do item that's like switch to using module prepend because it just does it better and so they're usually happy to see the pull request hey speaking about pull requests that's a good way go around and find like deprecation warnings on, for gems that you use under Rails 5 and yeah. submit those and fix those deprecation warnings. So if you want to pull, like those are the types of things that I definitely appreciate and merge almost immediately. Especially now that GitHub has the squash and merge, which uh, works into my workflow a lot better than the merge button did. I didn't like the merge button, so I would have to like wait till I was at a computer and like, but now like right from my phone, I can be like squash and merge. I actually, no I actually, at least for open source, uh, still prefer to have them manually squashed and then click the merge button. Why? The merge button documents who did the work of reviewing the pull request. Hmm. Yeah, I guess that's that's true. Doesn't not applicable really in my projects where it's either me or me or Caleb or right. like. <laughs> um, but yeah, in Rails, I can see that would be that would be interesting. Yeah, uh, be... and to be fair, I actually reach for squash and merge all the time on Diesel. It's definitely very much a concern that I only have in Rails. But right. for a project that has more than like let's say three maintainers, I think uh, just documenting who was the reviewer on it is a useful thing to do. Right. Well, you could do that with a bot. Just write more software. It's an asset all the time, right? <laughs> Put signed off by in the commit message. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we, it would not be, I'm, I'm 100% confident that people do that already in some place somewhere. Anyway, I think, I don't know. I think we've done enough. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, I think open source is hard. Yeah. So make it as easy as you can. Small changes, well-documented, friendly attitude. I mean, I think the one thing that I guess I probably don't say enough in my talks that I should be saying more is just like, no, seriously, open source is really hard, and we're all really bad at it, like both maintainers and contributors, and we're all still trying to figure this out. So if you're ever feeling like everything around open source is more complicated and more difficult than it needs to be, regardless of which side of the fence you're on, it's true. Right. I mean, that's true about software development, right? We're really bad at it. We're still trying to figure it out, and it's more complicated than it, sh it feels like it should be. Um, that's true. I guess open source <laughs> just adds the additional layer of things that we're bad at on top of 
the things that's a whole nother layer of like social skills that many people are bad at and uh dealing with people that you aren't talking to face to face people you don't know expressing your frustrations in inappropriate ways and yeah uh, yeah going on stage and showing a picture of you with a hitler mustache (laughs) it's not as bad in context i I mean being called hitler that's it's pretty good I mean that that's that's like achievement unlocked though. I'd be I feel, I'd actually feel pretty good about that one. That person did kind of give me a gift because now when I'm having a bad day, I just think to myself, well, at least I didn't get called literally Hitler on the internet today. <laughs> Although I tweeted that exact sentence once, and and some of my trollier friends immediately all tweeted at me saying literally Hitler, right? Because <laughs> they're lovely people who want to make sure I have a good day. Yes, hello, Kitty. <sighs> All right. Anyway, and I think we should. my lap. I think the cat is saying wrap up and pet me. Okay. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 77. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes or Google Play are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any others, you can tweet us at underscore bike shed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on the website. As always, thanks for listening to the bike shed, and we'll see you next time. All right. Adios, I guess. Hang on. Stop. <laughs>